0: Hello everyone, Dr. Anna Cabeca here for a Couch Talk where we're going to have intimate conversation about issues that affect your health, your well-being, and your sexuality. Today we have as a guest Dr. Michael Ruscio with us today and we're going to address the hormone to gut and the gut to hormone connection, the interrelationship between these two very intricate and very important systems within our body and really gain insight into the special aspects of ourselves. Now, I want to introduce you to Dr. Ruscio, who is a chiropractic physician but specialized in functional medicine and has really taken that level of specialty to go deep into understanding the etiology of gut and um, irritable bowel syndrome and dysbiosis and gut dysfunctions. So today he has a degree of um, an exercise kinesiology and correct you have many things a postdoctoral and is a functional medicine certified practitioner as well as um, continuing with education from the naturopathic medicine institute and the american academy of anti-aging medicine as well as many other areas and uh, michael it's great to hear with us To have you here with us today. Will you tell us a little bit of background about how you developed into this area of specialty?
1: Sure, sure. It's good to be with you again, and and, uh, thank you for having me. Um, Essentially, my my story probably isn't one that's too unfamiliar to your audience, where I was in college doing my pre-medical training, and I actually wanted to go into conventional medicine initially until I had my own health experience, which led me down the path of finding alternative medicine. And essentially, when I was in college, I, I went from being very, you know, um, in, in very robust health. I, I played lacrosse in college, and you know, was pretty, pretty uh, high energy guy. And all of a sudden, I started having insomnia, depression, food reactivity, brain fog, and. I went to a number of conventional doctors. No one was really able to figure anything out. And that eventually led me to the field of functional medicine, where it was found that I had an intestinal parasite that was at the underpinnings of all my symptoms. And that was really a kind of a cathartic, eye-opening event for me. And so I chose to go into alternative medicine from there. And it's been a really nice experience to work in the functional and alternative medicine space. And much of what I do now is trying to bring a very science-backed application of natural medicine to my patients and my readers. And I think that's important because in in alternative medicine, there, there's not a lot of regulation, which can be both a blessing and a curse. It can be a blessing because it allows you to do different things and, and think outside the box. It can be a bit of a curse because sometimes it leads to excessive testing and excessive treatment, crazy diets, um, you know, expensive care for a patient. So what I really try to provide people is a very evidence-based, conservative yet effective model of natural and functional medicine that can help them get well, and uh, do so without having people needing to resort to a crazy diet or a really expensive, uh, you know, sort of testing or supplement regime. So that's kind of the long short of it, I'm also involved in a little bit of research. We're um, publishing some research from the patient population that we see at our office, trying to enhance and and better some of the natural treatments that we have for different digestive conditions.
0: And I think that's excellent, because as scientists, as clinicians, and to constantly have your hands into research and the pros and cons. And I was saying checking and double checking myself, right? Mm-hmm. Is it just me or is it other people too? And right. and I think that's that's really important. When, um, now as you develop this interest into GI health, how, like for instance, in my medical practice, one of the thing in regulating hormones, the first thing I would do with my clients is put them through a modified elimination diet and detox programs while I'm getting their lab results back so by the time they come back for their lab results they'd be like oh my god I'm 90% better already and and let's talk about that relationship between the gut and the hormones and and how you approach a client with hormone imbalance that's coming into your office
1: Well, I very much agree with what you just said and it it can be amazing when someone comes in with a number of different symptoms and you put them on a modified elimination diet of, of some sort and a month later 80% 80% of their symptoms are gone. And I th- really think that showcases not only the power of diet but also the power of the gut. And and so certainly there there's a there's many many systems of the body that are affected by the gut. And and I know for the purposes of our talk we're trying to cure this hormones. so let's go into a couple of them. There is Uh, maybe two ways we can look at this, uh, you know, and I know we talked about starting with the gut to hormone connection. And then after we discuss that, we'll go into the hormone to gut connection because it does, it does go both ways. But for the gut to hormone connection, there's a number of infections and and I use the term infection loosely because some of these things we're, we're learning are not truly infections, but they're more so Uh, problematic when they become out of balance and H pylori is a good example of this or helicobacter pylori it's a bacterium that usually inhabits the stomach we used to think of it as an infection or as a pathogen but now we're learning that it has many commensal or uh, symbiotic or or it can be our friend type of relationships Uh, so it's not always bad it's not always good it's something we take kind of on a case-by-case basis Now, specifically, we're starting to see research coming out that is is showing what I think clinicians like you and I have been observing for a while, which is, boy, we we, we find this organism, we eradicate it, or we get it back into appropriate levels, and we see some miraculous improvements. Now, many of your listeners are probably familiar with thyroid autoimmunity, or Hashimoto's, the primary cause of, of hypothyroidism in most westernized countries. So, This process of thyroid autoimmunity or Hashimoto's causes hypothyroid, and we're learning that the treatment of H. pylori may actually improve thyroid autoimmunity. There was one exciting Italian study that took two groups of patients. Both groups had an H. pylori infection, and they also had thyroid autoimmunity. Half the patients were treated for the the, uh, H. pylori, and the other half were not, and at the end of treatment, they noticed a a marked reduction in thyroid autoimmunity in the group that was treated for H. pylori, whereas there was no significant change in the group that was not treated for H. pylori. So that was a pretty keynote study. And there have been a couple other studies that have shown similar results. There was one case study in the treatment of a patient with blastocystis hominins, which is a like a bacteria. It's a protozoa. It's kind of like a slightly more advanced cousin of bacteria, I suppose you could say. And this person saw a reduction in their thyroid autoimmunity and also a reduction in the amount of thyroid hormone medication that they needed. And there have been a number of other studies that have shown a correlation between H. pylori and different autoimmune conditions, everything from type 1 diabetes all the way through rheumatoid arthritis. So we're certainly starting to see that, in particular, this one bug, but not limited to, but we just seem to have some of the best evidence for this bug, that in some cases, treatment of this H. pylori can improve thyroid uh, autoimmunity and may improve other types of autoimmunity also.
0: That's an interesting fact, you know, and I didn't realize the connection between H. pylori and um, treatment improving Hashimoto's thyroiditis, so that's an excellent thing. Definitely cleaning up the gut is a big part of it, yeah. and maybe that's partly going hand in hand in that process. Now, H. pylori can be protective in some instances, right?
1: It can, and, and what I think this really has to do with is the timing of H. pylori colonization. Um, you know, I've I've recently written a book on this. The book won't be out probably for a number of months. Um, but in, in writing the book, I went through a pretty intensive review of the literature, and you see conflicting things. You see in some cases H. pylori is protective. You see in other cases H. pylori may initiate autoimmunity. And what this likely has to do with is one or two things. One is the timing of infection or of colonization. It seems that if... If someone acquires a bug like this early in life, perhaps before three or four years of age, it tends to uh, it, you know, kind of become a member of the community and the immune system sees it as being okay and it has a protective effect. But if this organism comes into the system once the majority of the immune system has developed and the majority of the gut microbiotic community has developed, which happens predominantly by about age three. So if it happens after that, it may have a pathogenic or a deleterious effect where it may have some harm. So where this becomes problematic is we look at some research in third world countries that don't have very uh, high levels of, of hygiene or hunter gatherer bands that have lots of exposure to these organisms. And we see early colonization and that these people have much less autoimmunity. However, when we look at people maybe in, you know, westernized countries, we see someone has H. pylori, they also have an ulcer, and that H. pylori may have provocated their thyroid autoimmunity. So, Timing may be a very important factor here, but it may also not be only limited to timing. It may have to do with the strain of the H. pylori itself. And this gets a little bit murky, but there's different strains of H. pylori, And some strains have been shown to potentially be more pathogenic for autoimmunity. And there's another theory floating around out there that it may not just be the strain of the H. pylori specifically, but it may be the compatibility between the strain and the host. And one analogy that's been used in some of the research papers is if you have an African form of H. pylori inhabiting in a European, it may be pathogenic because it's not a good match. But if you have an African form of H. pylori residing in an African, then it may uh, have minimal detriment and potentially even benefit. So it's a a great question that you ask and there doesn't seem to be a super concise answer to that but I think when we take a step back and look at this clinically, if someone presents to a doctor's office and they have H. pylori and they have another condition like autoimmunity or ulcers or reflux or, or what have you, then it's certainly something that one may want to treat. Additionally, I think if we use natural treatment methods that we have the, a minimal chance for harm and the highest chance for doing good for that person. And so what this looks like uh, is there's a triple or quadruple therapy that, that uses a few different types of antibiotics and a- acid-suppressing medications conventionally, whereas in natural medicine, we can use things like probiotics and antioxidant known as N-acetylcysteine and herbs uh, like matula or Mastica. And, and Probiotics, N-acetylcysteine, and metula armastica have very little downside, whereas some of the antibiotics or acid-suppressing medications, especially if used long-term, do have a downside. So I think we can make a much easier case to treat someone with H. pylori if we're not sure if it's helpful or harmful if we use a natural treatment approach.
0: Yeah, I think this is a fascinating discussion because the region of the world that we're in and and our circumstances, our environmental circumstances versus our exposure, can affect um, our autoimmunity, and it's just really fascinating. So. And that is, you know, where we talk about H. pylori and the natural regimens. I know as a physician treating clients in mm-hmm. the past with triple antibiotic therapy, it often was not the end-all be-all. We still mm-hmm. needed to follow up with a gut rebuilding, restoring regimen with probiotics, with a lot of glutamine and nutrients to help, you know, the endothelium or the Um, mucosal lining of the GI tract and how important that is my gosh aloe vera and tons of different things that we would increase your regimen sounds really simple so talk to you know please share that a little bit more with us
1: well I think there there's there's a few key things here that uh, have been left out of the dialogue in terms of H pylori treatment and I think maybe this has happened because you know, we all, we all come to healthcare or to medicine with our own biases. Uh, I think if, you're, if you've been trained conventionally, you may have a little bit of a conventional bias. If you've been trained alternatively, you may have a little bit of an alternative bias. And uh, for whatever reason, I, I try to not have a bias at all and, and try to take from both sides of the fence so as to produce the highest benefit. And when you do that, you see a few things that are, are, are pretty noteworthy. One... There have been a few, I shouldn't say a few, there's been very high-level science. And and when I say high-level, I mean meta-analyses, which are essentially summaries of numerous clinical trials. Uh, So probably the gold standard in terms of scientific evidence, clinical scientific evidence. uh, Meta-analyses that have shown that when you co-administer a probiotic along with an antibiotic, you significantly increase the cure rates or the clearance rate of H. pylori. So... Probiotics do seem to have a benefit why that trips some people up is some people think that oh I'm, I'm taking an antibiotic why would I bother taking a probiotic because won't the antibiotic just kill the probiotic wow. which which makes sense but it, you know it, it's it's not really how it plays out clinically we see that for whatever reason and there's a number that we could go into in terms of mechanism but but for whatever reason, when we administer a probiotic along with an antibiotic that actually has an enhancing effect on clearing the H. pylori. So that's one thing that can be very helpful that's often left out of the equation. Now, there's another where there's a little bit less data to support, but I think it's, it's, it's fairly impressive data, which is um, the administration of that antioxidant, N-acetylcysteine that we uh, spoke about a moment ago. And N-acetylcysteine is, is an antioxidant. It has a lot of health-promoting Uh, qualities to it, but it's also an anti-mucolytic, meaning it breaks down mucus, and biofilms which can cover and kind of protect H. pylori. H. pylori, in some cases, likes to build this kind of like a protective fence over it, and it's known as a biofilm. And so one study in particular took two groups of patients that were having a hard time clearing their H. pylori infection. One group was given an antibiotic and the other group was given an antibiotic plus this n-acetylcysteine and you know the the exact numbers i may have slightly off but i believe you, you went from a 23% clearance rate to a 64% clearance rate uh, with the addition of the n-acetylcysteine to the antibiotic so quite you know almost a tripling of the clearance rate when adding this antioxidant to the antibiotic so we typically don't recommend antibiotics because we don't really need to. Uh, but probiotics will help combat and, and push out the H. pylori, and also n-acetylcysteine. And when that is combined with some of these herbs, we've seen excellent results in terms of clearing the H. pylori, but also in terms of having a nice symptomatic improvement in the patient. So there's there's a lot that natural medicine has to offer when used alone or when combined with antibiotics to to eradicate or to uh, or to put H. pylori back in check. It may not be an issue of strict erratification, meaning there's none of it in your system, but you want to have the colonies balanced. So you don't want to have this massive overgrowth of H. pylori that's kind of pushing out your other good bacteria. You want to use uh, agents to bring down H. pylori, allow your good bacteria to grow, and keep the community in balance.
0: Uh-huh. And you incorporate modified elimination diet during this process as well?
1: Uh, yeah. Usually not during the time when we're treating the H. pylori. Usually we'll start people off with a modified elimination diet, kind of like you do, it sounds like, right out of the gate while we're waiting for lab work to come back. And and then when the lab work comes back, someone's usually, um, you know, uh, well, yeah, they're, they're still doing an elimination diet. Sorry, I, for a minute there I thought you said a, a modified fast. So, oh. yes, um, we will have someone usually eating a fairly healthy diet, some type of elimination diet of common allergens like gluten, dairy, soy, sugar, processed foods, uh, You know, it doesn't have to be perfect, but if, if a patient can be 80% compliant with that diet, in my mind, it can definitely help with the clearance of H. pylori, and this probably comes back to the fact that when you eat inflammatory foods, inflammatory foods, of course, create inflammation, and it's been shown that inflammation actually allows bad bacteria to grow and kind of poisons good bacteria. So if we need the good bacteria to grow to push out the H. pylori, if we eat an anti-inflammatory diet, that creates an environment that's hospitable to good bacteria, which then push out the H. pylori.
0: Yeah, totally makes sense. That's really good to know. Now, let's go a little... And the other thing, too, with agreeing with the um, herbal therapies, the complementing herbal therapies, and and just your comment is like... The, to reemphasize the statement is that we do not discriminate against healing modalities, right? right. Well if say work, let's learn about them. Let's work with them. You know, it's not draw a line. I wasn't trained this way, or this is alternative. This can't be right. And it um, makes me rem- remember a a decade ago, using probiotic therapy for my clients in in GYN. Again, so much related to gynecology to gastroenterology, right? Sure. And a consultant gastroenterologist wrote in his note, um, uh, the the recommendation of some uh, probiotic therapy which is anti-antibiotic is not warranted in this individual Mm -hmm. and it just was you know super eye-opening to me to understand to understand the misunderstanding that's in our in our medical space but I really that was a decade ago our gastroenterologists are up to speed and know that probiotics are beneficial and incredibly, I mean, is essentially helpful. The big thing, though, is getting people off the antacids and the, you know, a lot of the OTC self-medicating for the symptom, right? The symptomatic Great. treatment of um, the, it, you know, possibly the H. pylori or the gastroesophageal the indigestion, etc. So, which brings me to the next point of let's let's go into how our horm how the guts produce hormones and going to this mystery of the hormone-gut connection.
1: Right, so <clears throat> there's, there's some you know, really interesting clinical observations that I've made. Uh, you know, me uh, focusing predominantly on the digestive tract, but also trying to practice in a somewhat holistic model of functional medicine. You know, I, I've noticed that a number of women, and I'm sure this is no surprise to you or to many of your listeners, um, will notice that their digestive symptoms get better or worse during different parts of their cycle or they notice that these things onset during or after menopause. And so there there definitely seems to be this connection between female hormones and gut symptoms. And so this this has kind of two two, uh, aspects of, of effect. Imbalances in the gut may actually cause problems with female hormones themselves. And part of this just simply has to do with compounds that are released by gut bacteria and how gut bacteria aid in detoxification. So if there's imbalances in the gut bacteria, there can be imbalances in detox and that can cause problems with hormone balance. So the gut directly can affect these female hormones, but then these female hormones can affect some of the uh, symptoms like gas, bloating, motility, which leads to constipation or diarrhea. Uh, And and what I found to be very effective is a combination of treating the problems or the imbalances in the gut. And this may be through diet, elimination diet, like like we talked about, probiotics. It may be through the administration of herbal antibiotics to help to clean out bacterial overgrowth, if those are present. Uh, In combination with using, and primarily what I've used are certain herbal tinctures that are... Kind of like female hormone adaptogens, meaning they help to take low estrogen and bring it up or take high estrogen and bring it down. And the same thing with progesterone. Uh, if, if a woman is cycling, those tend to, to work the best. Um, and a combination of those two has has worked incredibly well for women that co present with female hormone symptoms and digestive symptoms. And it, it, it's a fairly common presentation where you have a woman who maybe had some years of stress, not eating that well, maybe prior antibiotic use or prior birth control use. And now all of a sudden they have some female hormone symptoms like PMS and also bloating and insomnia. And when we treat both of these systems together, the female hormones and the gut, we see a nice response. Um, Excuse me, there's a few others, but I'll I'll pause there for a minute in case there's anything that you want to add to that.
0: Yeah, no, I think that's really important to note and just to bring the attention to women that are listening about the hormone connection to the gut. I mean, it's, it is fundamental. We can produce hormones, detoxify our hormones through gut and, a, and the bacteria within the gut and the enzymes they produce can really affect us. So getting this imbalance is key. Now, you mentioned some hormone adaptogens. So I want you to continue on that.
1: Sure. So there, there's a couple of different formulas that we use. Um, You know, one is, is called chase tree or, Mm -hmm. or Vitex. And and I'm sure your, your audience is very familiar with that. There's one thing I I just want to point out that, that I think is important to mention. Um, There's, there's another compound that's also claimed to support progesterone called wild yam. And when I was going through, a review of the medical literature on this, gosh, now maybe four or five years ago, um, I was looking for studies that supported wild yam as a progesterone-balancing herb. And all of what I found actually supported that wild progest- um, yam functions as an estrogen-balancing herb, not progesterone. And after doing a little bit of digging, I figured out that it's actually not wild yam that affects progesterone. But it's when wild yam is bacterially fermented, it can it can produce a uh, bioidentical type of progesterone. But what's happened is some of these natural um, you know, herbal companies have marketed wild yam as a form of balancing progesterone. But again, it's actually not wild yam. It's bacterially fermented wild yam. Um, so that's important to keep in mind for women because I think it's important to have one agent Um, maybe like Dong Quai, that balances estrogen, and then another agent that balances progesterone. And the wild yam won't do that. Vitex will help, um, but Vitex only works if a woman is cycling because it works through the brain, and once you're no longer cycling, that, that brain-to-ovary connection uh, isn't, isn't really a viable uh, therapeutic avenue, so we typically will, will use a low-dose bioidentical uh, balance of estrogen and progesterone in most cases when a woman is no longer cycling, uh, but there's a number of herbs that can work well. Uh, I would just recommend you find a provider who's, who's skilled in using these and give them some time. Most of the literature has shown that within three cycles, a woman will see the full benefit from these herbs. So don't expect it to you know, fix things overnight. Give them uh, a, a few months, and then if, if they're working, continue. And if not, they, they may want to uh, reevaluate
0: and to emphasize that we don't give herbs alone we give it with lifestyle changes modifications dietary modifications continuing to get to the underlying reason but i will tell you that you know, combination of chased berry and being dairy free and um, really can make a huge difference in PMS yeah. and ovarian cysts and endometriosis, and the list goes on. So, a lot can be done. So, for women listening that are really struggling with these situations, there's there is a lot of natural medicine that can be done, and coupled with lifestyle management, and and. So let's, I really am excited to go into a little bit more of this uh, hormone to gut connection as well and talking about sleep and the importance of sleep as well as the um, effect that our GI tract can have on our melatonin, melatonin production or the role of melatonin Mm. in this whole master circuitry.
1: Yes, melatonin is uh, a fascinating hormone. Melatonin is released by your pineal gland during sleep uh, and also during the, the darker hours of the night. Um, and melatonin is not only a sleep hormone, but it's also a fairly powerful antioxidant. And there have been a few studies that have shown that patients with IBS or irritable bowel syndrome, which you know typically consists of symptoms of abdominal pain or bloating, and altered bowel function. And that may mean constipation, it may mean diarrhea or loose stools, it may mean an oscillation between the two. But you predominantly see this uh, abdominal discomfort, pain, bloating, and then altered bowel function. And studies have shown that patients with IBS have lower melatonin. Other clinical trials have shown that supplementing with melatonin improves symptoms of IBS, And what's even more fascinating and kind of connects all these is that it has also been shown that inflammation and other digestive conditions like IBS or inflammatory bowel disease, those correlate with insomnia, meaning the the, the worse the symptoms in the gut are, the poorer someone's sleep tends to be. So we see this cycle where it looks like problems in the gut probably detract from sleep and the production of melatonin that happens during sleep. And this may feed back and make the gut symptoms even worse. So it's kind of like this self-feeding cycle where you need to get adequate sleep to recover and heal from your digestive symptoms. But when you're woken up because of your digestive symptoms, then you don't sleep well. You don't release the melatonin needed in part to heal, which makes the whole problem worse. So it's kind of like this self-feeding cycle in a downward direction. And, and when I had my digestive um, parasitic infection, my sleep was terrible. And it wasn't that I was waking up at night wincing in pain. Sometimes this is a inflammation that doesn't cause any overt symptoms. So, so you, don't, you don't wake up with this heartburn or this pain, but it's enough to cause this internal stress response to wake you up. And anything that disrupts your sleep is is very, very damaging to your health. And in fact, a poor night's sleep has been correlated with any type of disease or morbidity. So it's truly one of the most foundational aspects of our health is a healthy night's sleep. And it it does clearly seem that this interference of sleep interferes with melatonin and melatonin is needed for uh, its antioxidant and anti-inflammatory properties, part of which help heal the gut. So uh, for people listening or, or reading this, definitely very important if you're not sleeping well to get to the bottom of your sleep and one oftentimes overlooked cause of problems with sleep are are these gut conditions that can reduce or inhibit the production of melatonin.
0: And also vitamin D plays in here as well.
1: Yes, and this one is really interesting also. And... You know, this is where we have another uh, handful of clinical trials that have shown that supplementation with vitamin D does tend to improve IBS, again, irritable bowel syndrome. It's not to say that vitamin D may not help with other conditions like ulcers, reflux, um, what have you, but... We just have the most data in a lot of cases regarding IBS because it's, it's a fairly prevalent and well-studied condition, um, but there have been some clinical trials showing that vitamin D supplementation helps with IBS, and what I think is probably happening here is that vitamin D is needed to modulate or to tone your immune system. And what may happen in IBS is that your immune system overly uh, aggressively attacks the bacteria in your gut. So we have all this bacteria that should be in your gut. But in IBS, that good bacteria may be attacked by the immune system and what vitamin D may do is it may help balance or calm down the immune system so that it no longer overzealously attacks those bacteria and the subsequent symptoms that happen as a result of that, inflammation, bloating, constipation, diarrhea, abdominal pain, what have you. So vitamin D, another simple intervention, either supplementally or by obtaining sunshine, that can help with a number of conditions. One, namely here, would be the health of your gut and the health of the immune system in your gut.
0: So are you looking for vitamin D levels, vitamin D25-hydroxy, 50 to 80 range, in your clients with IBS?
1: Hmm. You know, it where I fall with IBS, I'm not exactly sure. I'm looking for at least thirty to forty. I, I you know, I'd say ideally at least forty. Um, do they need to be sixty, seventy, eighty? I'm not sure. There's some evidence showing that for frank autoimmune conditions like hypothyroid may respond well, and there's been a few studies that have shown that vitamin D supplementation decreases thyroid autoimmunity. Um, but there's two sides of vitamin D and, and vitamin D that's too high, may be problematic. So um, to be truthful, I, I don't, I'm not overly meticulous about supplementing with vitamin D into a, a, a very specific range, but we look if someone's deficient if, and if they are deficient, we try to get them up to at least I'd say in the forties. Um, but, you know, coming back to the comments you made earlier about being holistic, the, you know, exactly where the vitamin D isn't, is, isn't the end-all be-all and you know too much vitamin D can also be problematic so you know I'm a bit more conservative on my vitamin D dosing than I was maybe five years ago but there is some evidence surfacing showing that oversupplementation with vitamin D may cause immunosuppression and other problems uh, in the immune system as well as imbalances in, in calcium levels in the blood so um you
0: know. Yeah, no, I agree. And I yeah. think that issue is too, is improper supplementation with vitamin D, right? Are we using 50,000 of vitamin D2 or are we using it without K2? You know, I mean, vitamin D, vitamin D says deposit calcium, vitamin K says where. We need to use those both in a judicious relationship. And I think that's a big part of it. I'm, I was on the fear, I was very fearful of seeing calcifications and heart disease right. and increased risk factors like this because of depositing calcium on inflamed vessels, let's say, and um, and that being an issue because replacing vitamin D without K2 or without addressing anti-inflam- you know, anti-inflammatory issues and getting the system really balanced. So I agree, improper supplementation is key, and as much as we want to get from nature, we get a lot more than vitamin D from the sun. So listeners, a lot more than vitamin D from the sun. Grounding outside, getting it in to your eyeballs, not through your glasses. You've heard me talk about this before. And when when you were talking, it just, um, I think a good title for vitamin D is the great mediator. And it's not, for our listeners, it's not a vitamin, it's a pro-hormone, and it is essential for a healthy, you know, for progesterone receptors and function, it's especially in neurologic cases where we're working on clients even post TBI, if they don't have a sufficient vitamin D level, the IV progesterone is not going to be as effective. And then the other thing is we need vitamin D on board for a healthy DHEA metabolism as well as oxytocin. So it is, it is I think appropriate, we can appropriately name it the great mediator. Hmm. And here, its role in the gut and gut health, and
1: yeah, and I and I would absolutely agree with you there. And I, I I think it is important to look at vitamin D with a healthy uh, restraint. Uh, some of the early literature on vitamin D, I think, caused quite a bit of overexcitement in the medical community, where we were noticing a correlation with all these diseases and low vitamin D, and we got really excited that hey, here's a, a cheap, uh, you know, vitamin pro-hormone, whatever you want to call it, that may help with all these conditions. But as we started performing clinical trials with vitamin D supplementation, we found that we didn't see all of those diseases reverse because of vitamin D. And what you we're seeing published in some of the research literature now is a narrative that vitamin D may be a marker of ill health, not necessarily a cause of ill health. Uh, so certainly we, we want to try to get someone vitamin vitamin D level into the adequate range, but there may be much more to that low vitamin D than just vitamin D deficiency. There may be inflammation that's driving that, uh, obesity, overweight, uh, and the sun is probably the best way to obtain vitamin D. Uh, There there was recently a a pretty impressive review paper that essentially looked at how much uh, UV exposure different regions of the United States uh, obtained uh, geographically and they were able to show that the regions with the highest UV penetration actually had the lowest incidence of many types of cancers and there was no association to malignant melanoma which is the most dangerous type of skin cancer. So what was really interesting was they showed a number of cancers were protected by living in a region with higher UV exposure. what you would think is potentially some of these you know, skin cancers would increase in incidence and the most dangerous form, uh, melanoma, did not increase. And, and so I, I think we're starting to see a, a revamping of the avoid sun and, and, uh, and, and, and I always I find it disheartening when I'm walking down the street on a nice sunny day and I see someone with an umbrella as if you know the sun is just going to turn like they're, like they're a vampire and they're afraid of any sun exposure. Certainly, you never want to burn. You don't want to be excessive. But healthy and moderate sun exposure does seem to protect from a number of different diseases. So it's just important to put that out there to try to emphasize this, Anna, as I know you do, from a lifestyle perspective and not just from a, a vitamin perspective.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I think that's really key. And um, what we can do to get there to get healthy vitamin D levels, and then just everything else that we get from being outside and that healthy sun exposure, truly a big advocate. So I know we're running low on time. So we wanted to kind of touch on stress hormones a little bit and anything else you want to close on or share. And also we'll share about how to get in touch with Dr. Ruscio. Let me, tell you his website is com. That's D-R-R-U-S-C-I-O.com. And be sure to go there and check it out and sign up for his list and listen to his amazing podcasts, which are great as well.
1: And thank you. Uh, and coming to the, the stress connection, it, it, there's just so much to say about the gut because it, it affects so many things. But uh, it has been shown, for example, looking at college students who are pre-exam, so they're in that pre-exam stressful cramming period. And it has been shown that students who are under pre-exam stress see a diminishment of their lactobacillus and bifidobacterium populations in their gut, two of the healthiest bacterial populations in the gut. Um, We also mentioned mediators, vitamin D being a mediator. Well, there's another mediator, which is exercise. And exercise, it seems can cause a degree of immunosuppression in the gut, which can be good. And, and here's, here's how this likely works. We wanna have good bacteria growing in the gut. And so if you have a, a very overzealous immune system like we see in IBS and also in inflammatory bowel disease, the immune system too aggressively attacks those healthy bacteria. And we see the numbers of those healthy bacteria dwindle. However, exercise tends to modulate certain receptors in the gut that are involved in this process. And specifically, they're known as toll-like receptor 4s. And when it downregulates these receptors, it makes the immune system less aggressive against your healthy bacteria. And we think that allows healthy bacteria to grow. This is probably why exercise has been shown to be helpful for those with IBS and with IBD, because it tones down the aggressiveness with which the immune system attacks your healthy commensal bacteria. However, if you exercise too much, we see an increased risk for infection, right? And this makes sense. Um, Probably because a little bit of immunosuppression is good because it protects your healthy bacteria, but too much immunosuppression allows too much bacterial growth. And then we see increased risk of infection. And it's not surprising that we're, we're seeing many athletes now turning to diets that are helpful for patients with IBS. Probably because they have um, a, a type of bacterial overgrowth known as SIBO or small intestinal bacterial overgrowth that underlies many cases of IBS and there are certain diets that are helpful for this condition. And so many athletes now who have gut symptoms are turning to this type of diet to relief probably because they're exercising too much or overtraining are increased risk for infection and bacterial overgrowth. So the right amount of exercise is important. And a few ways to know if you're overexercising that are pretty simple. Do you feel like you're getting progressively more fatigued? Do you feel wiped out after exercise? Are you having a hard time sleeping? Do you have cravings? And do you have a lot of nagging muscle pulls, tweaks, and, and soreness and things like that? Those are all pretty easy indicators that you're overtraining. You should feel... Uh, invigorated after exercise, you shouldn't feel wiped out. You should be able to sleep pretty well, and you should feel like you have a pretty decent level of overall energy and that you're not plagued by twings and twangs and aches and pains.
0: Yeah, no, that's a great point. And um, protecting yourself, you know, getting that balance between over-exercise and then choosing a healthy diet, which I will plug—a keto alkaline diet. There, healthy <laughs> fat, healthy protein, healthy alkalinizing vegetables, and um, and intermittent fasting. Right, gut rest.
1: Gut yeah, gut rest. intermittent fasting can be super helpful for people with with gut conditions. Yep.
0: Yeah. So, what we mean by intermittent fasting is keeping time between dinner and breakfast to at least 12.5 hours and if you're dealing with issues i really try to get my clients especially in the menopause to keep 15 hours between dinner and breakfast and dinner being a nice light meal as well kind of reversing our paradigm and following the the um you know very light light dinner type of philosophy so that your body can rest overnight and restore and rejuvenate and it does help with that restorative sleep as well so Uh, A lot of great information you've shared with us and please tell people again how they can get a hold of you.
1: My website's probably the best spot to go. It's just drrusho.com, D-R-R-U-S-C-I-O. On the homepage there, we do have an ebook called Start With The Gut. It's a free ebook. It's kind of a primer on the connection between the gut and so many other symptoms and systems of the body. Um, There's also our weekly newsletter that We'll notify you about, we put out a weekly video, a weekly article, a weekly podcast. And if you're someone who is a clinician or a person who really wants to get into a lot more of the nitty gritty, we also have something called the Future of Functional Medicine Review, which is a paid newsletter that's kind of like a clinical training that involves a case study and research study reviews for the people that really want to get into some of the nitty gritty, uh, nerdy details on some of this stuff.
0: I love it. I love it. Thank you so much. And thanks to all our listeners for being part of Couch Talk today and join us next time. Thank Thank you. you.